The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. Here we are, week three of our 10-week series. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan, and uh, I work here at the Inn as the missions coordinator. Uh, if you ever want to find yourself serving in some capacity in our city, uh, or in another country during the times of spring break, uh, Christmas, or the summer, come find me. That is a command. You must come find me if you want to do that because I will help you to, to do that. Um, it's a large part of my job. I love to get to know you. I would love to get to know you and also talk about um, opportunities we have and possibly getting involved in mission trips. Okay, before we get going, can I share something about myself? I feel like if you're going to list... Did someone say yes? Thank you. I feel like... It's nice to know at least something about the speaker, uh, so I'll tell you something about me. On the 4th of July this year, uh, and every year, I enjoy watching fireworks, but from afar. I take a couple steps back. I don't like to be near them. One of my, uh, or excuse me, so I'll tell you, on the 4th, um, the culture of lighting a firework, dangerous to me, not my favorite thing. Uh, a relative of mine a relative of mine told me that he had a Roman candle fight on Saturday, and I'm confused. Why does he do that? <laughs> Paintball with a mask is one thing, uh, but flaming balls of light is where I cross the line. Uh, I'm what you would call a scaredy cat. Now you guys know me. That, now you guys know me. We can start. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, is not a scaredy cat. Uh, he is the one, he's the one who walked on water uh, during a storm. He's the one to whom we bow our heads and pray. Let's go ahead. Let's do that right now. Lord, you are our king. You guide us. You, you give us hope, Lord. I pray that we would hear you tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, this is the third of our, our 10-week series, as I've said, on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be focusing on it all summer. All of you guys received a note card. They were on your chairs before you sat down. What that is for is for writing questions. If you guys have a question at any point during uh, the next 25 minutes, write it down. Put it in that wooden box over there. And at the, end of the, at the end of the summer, we're going to take a look at all the questions written and do our best to answer as many as we can, the ones that have or like the ones that repeat will probably uh, give priority over the ones that just have, or like that a lot of people didn't ask. So write a question down. There's no wrong question to ask. And perhaps at the end of our summer, when we have the panel up front, we'll answer your question. Um, so yeah, no dumb questions. You can find the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, where it consists of three whole chapters. Chapters 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. In those three chapters, there are 101 verses. 97 of the 101 verses are made up of Jesus talking. Four of those verses, the leftover four, are narrative. There are only four verses of narrative. It is his longest uninterrupted message found in all the Bible. It is the most famous collection of his ethical teachings. It includes sayings that you probably heard as kindergartners or in elementary school, like, um, do to others what you would have them do to you. 
It includes famous morality uh, guidelines like love your enemy. And if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn it. Uh, It even says, um, go the extra mile. Go the extra mile comes from the Sermon on the Mount. So many gems. It's special. The talk is special. The sermon is special. The speech is special. Whatever you want to call it, it's special. All 97 verses of Jesus' words are considered to be the principles of Christianity. But who are they spoken to? Who is the intended audience of the Sermon on the Mount? To solve this mystery, uh, we need to look at the four narrative verses. The first two and the last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount are the narrative verses. The 97 in between are Jesus talking. Those four verses together inform us of who the intended audience is. And so we'll look at the first slide. Okay. Okay. Um, now it's important to note that chapter four, chapter four, before you read this, one sec. Chapter four ends by saying that large crowds from Galilee, from Jerusalem, and from all over were following Jesus. In the next verse, chapter five, verse one, we read, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Sermon on the Mount, at the very end, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as as one of their teachers of the law. Now, would you all please close your eyes? No one's going to hurt you. Close your eyes. (laughs) Okay, I'll tell you when to open them. I want you to visualize the following. Jesus sees crowds that are following him. He walks up to the side of a small mountain and sits down. His disciples come to him, and he teaches them many things. Time passes, 15, 20 minutes, and Jesus' sermon is concluded. He sees the crowds of people amazed at his teaching. Talking amongst themselves, trying trying their best to remember all that he had just said. You can open your eyes. Who who was Jesus speaking to? Guys, he was speaking to everybody. He was speaking loud enough so the crowds of people could hear. Not just the 12 disciples. Who is, my, who is my intended audience right now? It's you guys, right? Because you all can hear me? Who's my intended audience right now? Huh? They were my intended audience for the moment. For the moment, Matt and Jessica were. You guys, if he didn't want the crowds to be the recipients of the message, he would not have been talking so loud. He was inviting those people on the mountainside, into his ministry, inviting them through his words to become disciples themselves. A disciple is defined as one who accepts and assists in spreading the doctrine of another. Those of us who call ourselves Christians very likely accept and assist the spreading of the gospel. We are Jesus' disciples. And that means that we, as Christians are the intended audience of the Sermon on the Mount. It was directed to us. 
to you, to you who believe. And so, with that in mind, we go to our text tonight. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, to the crowds, to us. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Christian theologians refer to these verses. A theologian is someone who, who knows a lot about theology. Christian theologians refer to these verses are as the you are's. The you are verses. You are the salt. You are the light. Um, and we'll read it again. Sorry. Beautiful. Okay. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. The first you are. Okay, three years ago, I was living in Spain. Uh, one night, I invited some friends over to eat together, and I never did this because my apartment was tiny and because I shared it with three other people. But I guess we could say the stars were aligned that night, and so my friends Jop and Pablo came over. Pablo came with his girlfriend. Uh, we congregated in the kitchen and chatted while starting to... Uh, prepared dinner, which was pasta and chicken that night. Uh, next thing I know, I'm being chastised. I was being chastised. I'll never forget. I was voted out. I was voted out as the chef uh, in my own apartment and demoted to what most would call the sous chef, the guy who cuts the vegetables. Um, <laughs> why? Let me tell you. I was demoted because I didn't add salt to the boiling pasta. Do you add salt to the boiling pasta? Every one of you does. Raise your hand if you don't. Thank you. That's right. That's right. Um, apparently, uh, I had screwed up. They made a couple jokes about American cuisine, took my uh, wooden spoon, and uh, pushed me aside. They were in charge of the pasta from now on. All that to say, all that to say, salt is important. Yeah? To us, we probably use it once every two days, maybe, if we cook, if we cook ourselves. Uh, let me tell you, though, it was so much more important in the time that this text was written in the first century. Back then, salt was used to preserve food items. People covered their perishable meats completely in salt to broaden the window of time that it was edible. It was the refrigerators of their... Salt was the refrigerator of that time. Salt preserved bodies. Egyptians used to use it to mummify their pharaohs. Uh, why did they mummify? Who knows why they mummified pharaohs? No one. Chris does. Do you know why? Great. We'll talk. We'll talk. Um, okay. Where are we at? Salt. Salt was considered a currency. Roman soldiers were paid in salt. In Latin, the language spoken by the Romans, sal meant salt. Sal meant salt. 
the English word salary, an amount of money paid yearly to an employee, originates from the fact that salt was a form of payment uh, for the Roman soldiers. Pretty cool. That's where the word salary comes from. Um, Another thing, we spill salt today, and for whatever reason, we throw it over our shoulders. Well, back then, spilling salt was considered an evil omen. Spilling salt sucked. Men, men, men and women were told to take the spilt salt and throw it over their shoulder because, because supposedly the devil was lurking behind them. It was so bad to spill salt that the devil was likely behind you if you were that unfortunate to have done that. Uh, the devil then went away after you threw it. So that's why we do that. That's why we do that. Um, Jesus calling us the salt of the earth means so much more than salt being valuable, though. Salt symbolized perpetuity, continuation, and incorruption. A covenant of salt lasted a long, long time. As salt to the world, we are called to sprinkle God's love in all situations for as long as we live. Salt gives flavor to life. It promotes the taste of other things. It enhances the experience in the most simple way, just by being there. Um, and you know that what's special, and you know that what's special about Jesus' de- declaration of us being salt, what's special is that before we do any kind of work, before we've done anything, he calls us the salt of the earth. We see, we see, we can conclude that we are pro- proclaimed salt not because of any accomplishments or any conditions that we have met, but because Jesus is just a loving dude. Dale Bruner, Dale Bruner, a famous theologian, says, Christians, excuse me, Christians are, by simple fact that they are with Jesus, the salt of the earth. It's like a father saying, I love you, to his newborn baby. Not because of anything the baby has done, because the baby has not done much, but rather because he's a part of his family. The second part of verse 13 kind of takes a turn. The second part kind of takes a turn. Uh, But, so you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. This is clearly a warning against losing our salty flavor. If we lose it, we are no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. We are no longer serviceable. Our flavor comes from our togetherness with Jesus. As we go out and spread salt in our friendships, in our, in our neighborhoods, through our personal conduct, when we spread salt, Jesus is the flavor. We're pouring it. Jesus is doing the work. Our saltiness comes from Him. If we drop our faith in Him, He who made us salty is gone. And when we're no longer with flavor, uh, there's, not, there's not really... A use. We're not really useful, he says. That's what that means. Um, and we'll continue. Let's continue to uh, verses 14 and 15 now. Uh, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. The New Testament we're reading right now was written about 2,000 years ago, and it was written in Greek. All the English Bibles that we have today are translated from the original Greek form, 
And so, that is often why we have Bibles with different translations. And so I want to point out that the word you, you, in the first sentence, <laughs> is meant to speak to more than one person. In the Greek, in the Greek, that word that was translated to you is haimes. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Haimes. Haimes translate to you guys, not just you. It was plural. It then communicates, you guys, you guys are the light of the world. You guys, not you dudes, you guys. You guys are the light of the world. Communally, we are the light of the world. We exist to brighten things up, to remove things from, a dark, from the dark. And like a city on a hill, we will not be able to hide. Dale Bruner, the theologian, says two awesome things in his study about these verses regarding the verse, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, he states that here Jesus is promising an impossibility of uselessness from his true disciples. We all have seen Mount Rainier off in the distance. Everyone in Seattle does. We, if there was a city booming with lights and buildings on top of that mountain, you would know it. Jaén, the city that I was living in, in, in uh, Spain, was known the whole city was known for having a town on the hill. There was a castle there. Uh, regardless of whether Hain wanted to be known for its town on, on the hill, it was. And here's a couple pictures. The first, the first four pictures I ever took when I was in the city were of the, the castle on the hill because you just can't avoid it. That's the first one. And then we have a zoomed one. There it is. El Castillo. There it is. Uh, everyone, everyone in the town was like, have you seen the castle yet? Have you seen the castle yet? I'm like, yes, it was the first picture I took. They loved it. Um, yeah, there honestly was no hiding, like cities on hills and how they can't hide. And how they can't hide. Jesus is not going to let the light of true disciples go unnoticed. Although at times it may, see, it may not seem like uh, you're doing much shining into the light of others. Here Jesus promises that anxiety of failure away. Like a city on a hill, can't be hidden. Uselessness is impossible for a true disciple. Which leads us to our next Bruner quote. What no one does with lamps, the Lord will not do with his disciples, says Bruner in this amazing statement. You, your light may not seem significant, but stay true to Jesus' words and your light will shine. He's not going to put you under a bowl. No one puts light under the bowl. He's going to pull you up on a stand and give light to everyone that you know. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Okay, now we've talked about salt individually. We've talked about light individually. We're going to combine them. Uh, we're almost done. Thanks for hanging in there, guys. Uh, in and of themselves, light and salt don't deserve much praise. Have you ever eaten salt for a meal? I haven't either. Light needs something to shine on for it to be of any value. Alone, dare I say, light is useless. Salt and light are the, are the means by which objects and foods become their best possible versions of themselves. They are enhancers. They are enhancers. They're all about the assist. Being present with other things is their purpose. 
Salt needs something to flavor, and light needs something to illuminate. In calling us the salt and the light, Jesus is encouraging us to live similarly. We're called to be around others. And that's awesome because it helps us to see that our lives as Christians extend so much further than what we do on Sundays and perhaps we go to the inn on Tuesday nights. Um, every, every, every single interaction that you have, that we have, is an opportunity for us to illuminate. Smiling at strangers, asking the janitor how he is doing, affirming a coworker, complimenting someone you don't know, spontaneously paying for lunch, offering rides, giving someone our time, showing interest in someone else, reaching out, calling your grandparents, or even sharing your faith with someone. Those are the things, those are some things that we can do to add salt. And you only need a little bit. You only need a little bit. We can also be salt to our own lives. We can be salt to ourselves. Um... Okay, we can, also, we can also add salt to our own lives, letting Jesus' flavor overwhelm us by putting ourselves in smart situations, by being quiet, by living humbly, by celebrating, uh, by giving ourselves time to recuperate, by asking ourselves, is this really good for me? Is this really life-giving for me, what I'm doing, what I'm saying, or what I'm thinking? Um, it only takes a little salt, you guys, just a pinch. You never know what God's going to do with that pinch uh, that we share. And I do want to say, sometimes our salt and light may not seem that flavorful or illuminating. Just a few days ago, I was with some friends, and because I was recently in the midst of preparing for this sermon, salt and light was really on my mind. Uh, my words and actions really were no different than they typically are when I'm hanging out uh, with these friends. Uh, I, I kind of didn't feel, I didn't feel at the moment that there was progress being made. Uh, in these people's faith, which, which they don't have. Um, our conversations revolved around sports and only sports, and every once in a while, uh, they would, we would make fun of each other. They would make fun of each other. Uh, I love those guys and always will, but I do want to say, um, sometimes our presence as salt and light won't feel as transformative to others as we want it to feel. We will feel at times that we aren't shining. Don't let that discourage you. Don't let that discourage you. Show up. Show up. Be there. And Jesus somehow will make sure you're the city on the hill, making it impossible to be useless. Keep sprinkling salt and let Jesus be the flavor that changes lives. Okay. There's one, there's one slide left. One verse left. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The reason we do any of this, the reason, the only reason we are to spread salt and light is to give uh, the glory to God, is to, is to, is to share light. Um, excuse me. The only reason we do any of this, like I said, is to give glory to God. That's it. There are no other reasons we do, we'd be salt and light in other people's lives. Our purpose in life is to remove the veil from the Father's face every single day and to display something of God's glory to the world. The good news is that Jesus is with us when we do it. He makes the mission possible. The packet of salt on your seat 
You don't have to keep it, but I would encourage you, put it somewhere where you can see it. So that when you wake up or when you get home, you're reminded that, that every, every minute, every hour, anything that you find yourself doing is, a, is purposeful. is an opportunity for you uh, to, spread, to spread the word. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what that's for. Let me pray for us. God, whether or not we feel equipped, you equip us. Lord, you've given us a purpose, and it can happen at any point in our lives, at any time in our days. Lord, don't let us limit ourselves. Take control. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.